Well, thank you, Ben, and good morning, everybody. It's, uh, it's good to be back with you. Thank you for uh, the invitation. Um, one of the uh, outcomes, I guess, of uh, the last uh, year for me has been that uh, since Robert's uh, arrival at that other place that we won't mention, um, I've been more free uh, to come and to uh, preach in other places. And uh, one of the great joys of that is the joy of uh, establishing and building on and maintaining new relationships um, and seeing familiar faces when you come uh, into a church. That's uh, a good thing to do. And uh, I've been made to feel very welcome this morning. So thank you uh, for that welcome. I bring you the greetings uh, of Robert and Dawn. Uh, and uh, all at Didsbury Baptist Church, and also the greetings of Northern Baptist College, which is uh, where I spend uh, most of my time uh, and my energy. We're uh, here this morning, this this isn't a particularly Baptist thing to say, I have to say, but uh, we're here this morning, for those of you who don't know, uh, on the feast of the baptism of Jesus. You kind of all knew that, didn't you? Um, In in many other churches today, uh, the reflection will be on the story of uh, Jesus' own baptism. And um, it it felt to me that that would be a helpful thing for us to do. Uh, Not because I want you all to become Roman Catholics and to celebrate the feast of the baptism of Jesus. But because it seems to me that this story has important things to say to us, as Ben intimated earlier, about... Our calling in Christ and our mission to serve God in the world. And there's good justification for Baptists to go to Matthew's Gospel to think about some of this. Matthew is, I have a little pet theory that each kind of Christian tradition and denomination really has its own gospel, the gospel that makes sense for that particular tradition. I won't bore you with all the details of that uh, complex theory, but, but part of it is very simple. I think Matthew is a Baptist gospel. The Sermon on the Mount, which we find only in Matthew, was and has always been a crucially significant text for Baptist Christians. As we have sought to understand what it means to be radically committed disciples of Jesus in often a confusing uh, and uh, not understanding world. Matthew chapter 18 has those fantastic uh, instructions about what to do when there's conflict in the church and that great promise of Jesus that where two or three are gathered in my name, there I will be among you. And again, within our tradition, that idea of the church gathered together in the presence of Christ, in its diversity, but in its unity given by the presence of Christ, that's a crucial text for us. This gospel ends with that great commission, (laughs) going to all nations, making disciples, baptizing, teaching them everything that I have commanded you. Uh, And that text was a hugely neglected text uh, within Western Christianity for many, many centuries. And arguably it was a Baptist, William Carey, who rediscovered it and said, that command isn't just for the people who heard it in Jesus' day. It's for all of us, here and now. That is our calling and our mission. 
and I think Matthew might also be a Baptist gospel, because Baptist people, it seems to me that one of our characteristics is that we want to take Scripture seriously. We are a biblical people. And Matthew, of course, is the gospel that most explicitly and obviously takes the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, seriously. Seeking to understand how these ancient sacred texts might actually speak to us today. And so this morning, here in this Baptist church, we gather around these scriptures. Matthew chapter 3. We're going to be focusing on verses 13 to 17, but I'm really grateful that we had uh, the whole chapter read to us. And as we prepare to hear what God might be saying to us from these ancient sacred texts. Let's pray together and ask God's blessing. And so, Almighty God, we pray that your word from the past may come alive here and now in the present. And may it so work, may it be active in our lives that we, your people, may serve you more faithfully in the days and the weeks and the months to come. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In this story of Jesus' baptism in Matthew's Gospel, the climax of the story is shaped by the imagery and the very words and language of Scripture. Sometimes Matthew makes this obvious. He kind of puts his scriptural quotations in quotation marks. Uh, This happened in order to fulfill what was said by the prophet Isaiah, Hosea, Jeremiah. Uh, Although at the end of chapter 2 we've got a slight problem one. If you want a little bit of homework, um, there's one of these where Matthew says, this took place in order to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. He will be called a Nazarene. Your homework is to find that text in the Old Testament. Um, Many people have searched, uh, none have yet found it. But the climax of this baptismal story doesn't have the explicit quotations, but it is a scene made up with the imagery and language of Scripture. As Jesus comes up out of the water... He receives three things. Firstly, an open heaven. This image seems to be derived from the opening chapter of Ezekiel. Where Ezekiel, with his people Israel in exile, goes down by the river Kibar, and there, under prophetic inspiration, The heavens are opened and Ezekiel begins to glimpse something of the purposes and plan of God for his people in his own day. Jesus receives this gift. The gift of the open heaven. The gift of being able to glimpse God's plan and purpose for his own life and mission and ministry. Secondly, Jesus receives the Spirit of God. Descending to him, 
So Matthew says, like a dove, and alighting on him. Many people go back and look at all the examples of doves in the Old Testament to kind of work out what the significance of a dove might be in this context. Um, some think it might have something to do with the dove that Noah sends out of the ark. Um, I'm of the view that it seems to me quite clearly to be an allusion to the opening chapters of Genesis. Where if you remember, the Spirit of God hovers over the face of creation like a bird. And brings order out of the waters of chaos. This image of the Spirit coming like a dove is an image of God's divine activity in the world to make this world the place that he wants it to be. God's power at work. Now in Jesus. The third thing that Jesus receives is the voice from heaven. This is my son, the beloved, with whom I am well pleased. The voice from heaven speaks biblical words. The words are taken probably from two sources, from Isaiah 42, where we have a vision of God's anointed king, who will come to redeem and to rescue God's people, to bring salvation, to heal the brokenhearted, to bind up those who are weak and give them strength. This king, who is also a servant. And also Psalm 2 verse 7. Again, a messianic prophecy. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. So Jesus, as he comes up out of the water, in this verse or two, Matthew seems to sum up everything that we are to understand about the significance of what has happened, about the significance of who Jesus is at this point of his mission and his ministry. He is the one who sees God's purposes, the one who is filled with God's power, and the one who is God's chosen Anointed king. Here, in the waters of baptism, the adult Jesus is portrayed as having his call and his vocation confirmed by God in the most powerful possible way. He's being commissioned to begin the work of public ministry, of going into surrounding countryside, the villages of Galilee and ultimately to Jerusalem to proclaim God is king. At this point Matthew invites us to say that here as we see Jesus hair wet (laughs) torso exposed standing in the muddy waters of the river Jordan here we are clearly invited to see that God's work in the world looks and sounds and feels like Jesus. Is your baptism like that? Some 
of you here may not even remember much about your baptism at all. Um, some of you may have been baptised as infants at some stage, and uh, uh, you may not have been through uh, a believer's baptism process. Uh, many of you here, I guess, have been through the waters of baptism, and uh, at least have been at that point where you're standing in the water, having been underneath, and are standing there with your hair soaking wet. What was your? Did you receive... Did you get the open heaven and the Spirit's blessing and the divine voice? I didn't. Or at least I may have done, but I didn't know it at the time. I was baptised at the age of 16, 2nd of January 1983, Cecil Row Baptist Church in Enfield, North London. And um, I was a fairly young Christian, I'd been a Christian about a year or so, uh, knew that I had to get baptised because that's what Jesus told me that I should do, so I went to baptismal classes and, um, and I knew it was important. So having been out on the razzle on New Year's Eve... On New Year's Day, I woke up and thought, I, I need to go and prepare for this baptism. So I went off somewhere on my own, and I remember thinking, okay, I'm going to spend the day in prayer. And then I realised that probably I could manage about five minutes, and I spent most of the day kind of wondering what to do with myself. And uh, came to the baptismal service, eight of us being baptised, and it was one of those occasions when really the sheer peculiarity of what was going on kind of became overwhelming. First of all, we were all stood in a line coming up to the baptismal pool. And there were three people ahead of me. I can't remember all of their names, but I do know that one of the girls was called Julie. And we sang... As we were preparing to go into the baptismal pool, O oh Jesus I have promised, with its famous line, my hope to follow Julie is in thy strength alone. And all of us at the back of the queue just started giggling. I then got to the microphone, as you do sometimes in Baptist churches, and uh, I had a very carefully prepared kind of script for what I would say in order to give testimony. And uh, I don't know whether this ever happened to you, but it, it just went out of my head completely. I, I, I became a babbling idiot for five minutes, trying to bear witness to what Christ uh, had done in my young 16-year-old life. And uh, went into the water, baptised, came up, and then all you think when you come up is, I'm soaking wet. And then you're kind of helped out and wrapped in towels and you traipse over a wet floor out of the church into some rather dubious changing rooms with screens to separate off the men from the girls. It was all rather, it was all kind of ordinary. Special, yes, but... But no real sense that God had spoken or that I'd received the Spirit. Do you know, I think we, we long in our Christian lives sometimes, don't we, for moments of clarity, for moments of revelation, for moments when unambiguously... Heaven opens, the Spirit comes, and God speaks and says, This 
is what you should be doing. This is who you are. You are my son. You are my daughter. With you I am well pleased. But it doesn't happen very often. And even when in church we we set up the means by which God promises to do those things. Baptism. For me, ordination and induction. Or other occasions. There is a sense in which, well, it all is rather ordinary. So the question is, not how did Jesus get this revelation, but what were the stages that led up to Jesus receiving the open heaven, the Spirit's blessing, and the divine voice? The church has always had a problem with this story of Jesus being baptised. The historical facts are pretty clear. Jesus was baptised by John the Baptist. Um, The explanation for that, I think, is quite clear, although you have to kind of assume that this was the case. John kind of hints at it. Um, I think Jesus probably started off life as a disciple of John the Baptist and was baptised by John along with other disciples uh, of John the Baptist. But of course, by the time the New Testament gets written, John is down here and Jesus is up here. John the Baptist must decrease and Jesus must increase. And so the idea that Jesus was baptised by John, well, there's a kind of growing embarrassment about it. The embarrassment is reflected in the New Testament itself. Matthew has this little dialogue that they have. When Luke tells the story of of Jesus' baptism, Luke just gets John the Baptist out of the way. So we're not even told that John the Baptist does it. Luke kind of dispatches him from the narrative. And when you get to John's Gospel, well there you get John the Baptist and Jesus, but you have no baptism. (laughs) Jesus isn't baptised at all in John's Gospel. And the reason that there's this embarrassment is due to a really quite simple point. This isn't the baptism that should have happened. Not from John's perspective. Let's go back a few verses and remind ourselves what comes before John cha- uh, Matthew chapter 3 verses 13. John the Baptist promised that one would come after him and when he did the allotted roles between John and the coming one would be entirely clear. The one who is to come would be the one doing the baptising. John the Baptist would be the one carrying the sandals. That's the demarcation of the roles according to John's message and expectation. So when in verse 13 we read... Then, Jesus came from Galilee to John. We are expected by, entitled to think by everything that's come before, that what we are now going to get is a story in which Jesus arrives, baptises John with the Spirit, 
And then John carries Jesus' bag as he moves around the Galilee preaching and healing and doing all the things that Jesus did. This isn't the baptism that's supposed to happen. So even John himself is astonished, is surprised, tries to stop it. Uh, The translation that we had read to us earlier on um, was accurate. John tried to prevent him. And my own translation is, is a bit more polite. It says, John would have prevented him. Which suggests that, you know, John kind of thought about it for a while, but then his better kind of inclination came over him and, you know, he just let Jesus go through. The, the, the text says, John tried to stop him. So Jesus is there on the banks of the Jordan. And John looks at Jesus, recognises that Jesus intends to be baptised by John, and for John the Baptist... This baptism would be such a pale imitation, such a subversion of everything that he had preached and proclaimed and invested his life's ministry in, that he stands in the water, hands outstretched, trying to stop Jesus from coming down the bank and into the water. This isn't the baptism that should happen. But it does. And perhaps in the fact that this baptism takes place, we get a glimpse of where it might be that God's spirit and voice and heavenly presence might also be available to us. You see, Jesus also does three things. And the three things that Jesus does in this account come before the three things that God gives Jesus. We're used to reading this story from the conclusion backwards. It's where we started this morning. Christians are notoriously bad at doing this. We read the story already knowing what the end might be. So we read, we read the stories of Advent... <laughs> knowing that Christmas is coming. (laughs) We read the story of the events of Holy Week, knowing that it's going to be alright come Easter Sunday. We read the story of the Old Testament, knowing that all of this is to be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And there's something inevitable about that, but when we do that, when we're too quick to read things in the light of the conclusion, we actually mute Scripture's power to take us on a journey. To help us to see that the open heaven, the Spirit's blessing, and the divine voice come after Jesus himself has done certain things. What is it that Jesus does? Let's return to the text. I think we can identify three things that Jesus does in this story. First of all, Jesus has serious intention. Verse 13, And Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan in order to be baptised by him. In Mark's Gospel, that verse just reads, Jesus came uh, from Galilee to John in the Jordan and was baptised by him. 
Matthew seems to want to say, this wasn't just some kind of remote detail, (laughs) some chance happening. Jesus intended for this to happen. And so serious was his intention that he makes a journey of approximately 70 miles from Galilee in the north to Judea in the river Jordan in the south to go there and to be baptised to push past John the Baptist's protests in order for this baptism to take place. There is serious intention here. Secondly, Jesus is committed to practical obedience. As I've already noted, Jesus and John have this little discussion, dialogue. John tries to prevent him. Jesus says to him, Let it be so for now, for it is proper for us in this way to fulfil all righteousness. Righteousness in Matthew's Gospel can be translated really very simply indeed. It simply means doing what God wants. Doing what God wants. Jesus insists, whether John likes it or not, whether John wants it or not, that for this moment, at this time, in this place, the baptism that should happen is the baptism that Jesus intends, not the baptism that John had foretold. These are Jesus' first words in the Gospel. In doing this, we fulfil all righteousness. And the theme of fulfilling righteousness becomes a theme right through this Gospel. This is what Jesus will expect of all who seek to follow after him. Practical obedience. A recognition that a part of our Christian journey is a simple matter of asking ourselves the question, as individuals and of course as churches, what is it that God wants us to do? What does it mean to be obedient at this place, in this time. Let it be so for now, Jesus says. It's for the moment. The New Jerusalem Bible has a wonderful translation. Um, There's only two words in Greek, so you have to expand it out. This is how the New Jerusalem Bible translates it. Leave it like this for the time being. Leave it like this for the time being. For the time being, this is what God wants. Things will change. This doesn't mean that I won't come and baptise with the Holy Spirit and with fire. This doesn't mean that Jesus won't be the one who brings the reign of God into the reality of people's lives. But for this moment, at this time, this is the thing that Jesus and John the Baptist should be doing. Practical obedience for the here and the now. And then thirdly, we have here in this story of Jesus being baptised, Jesus' own commitment to humble identification. In chapter 3, verses 5 to 6, we're told this. 
Then the people of Jerusalem and Judea were going out to him, to John the Baptist, and all the region along with the Jordan, and they were baptised by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Uh, You may have the scene in your mind, the picture in your mind, the opening scenes of some of those Jesus movies that I guess many of us have seen. John there, long hair, in his weird clothing, standing in the river, and a kind of queue of people snaking through the Judean desert, uh, each waiting to be baptised for repentance and the forgiveness uh, of sins. Sisters and brothers, the important point is this, that when Jesus comes to begin his work of ministry, he does not get first and foremost in the river with John, but he joins the queue of those who are waiting. Jesus identifies in humble service with those who acknowledge their need of God. With the ordinary people of Judea and Jerusalem who long for a different life and a better world and for God's presence with them. This is how one commentator puts it. The first thing Jesus does for the human race is to go down with it into the deep waters of repentance and baptism. Jesus' whole life will be like this. It is well known that Jesus ends his ministry on a cross between thieves. It deserves to be as well known that he begins his ministry in a river among sinners. How do we find the open heaven, the Spirit's blessing? The divine voice? Where is there the possibility of us receiving those moments of revelation and those moments of clarity in which God assures us of who we are and what we do? Well, perhaps it's as we commit ourselves to serious intention, practical obedience and humble identification. These, it seems to me, are the hallmark of Christian calling, Christian discipleship, and Christian mission. And they are as true for us as individuals as they are for us as gathered communities of churches. The Christian life, you see, is as much a matter of intention as it is of intellect or inspiration. I live my Christian life... I try to follow Jesus. I try to care for this person. I commit myself to being at this meeting. I work with this community of God's people. Not because I always feel inspired to. Not because it makes complete, obvious sense to me. But because I have committed myself to something. I come to church... Not as a remote chance or isolated fact. I come in order to. To meet with God, to meet with other people, to see what it is that God might have in store for me here. And there may be times in my life when others try to prevent me from doing 
what I before God seriously have committed myself to do. Others who command my respect. Others who have heard from God as clearly as I have. Others who speak in convincing and in powerful ways. But we know that this conversation, that decision, this place, this time, this is what God would have us do. But perhaps we do need to learn that sometimes, oftentimes perhaps, we are called to do things for the time being. <laughs> Let Leave it this way for the time being, says Jesus to John. Of course, if we wait till we've got it all sorted out and sewn up and worked through, then we'd never do anything in our Christian lives. But also many Christians, it seems, are, are waiting to do something. They're waiting for the extraordinary to happen first. They're waiting for the moment of revelation first. They're waiting for God to speak or for the Spirit to be felt. They're waiting for that first. And yet this passage seems to suggest that the simple question of asking what God would have me do and doing it, that comes prior to the point at which God and his voice might be heard. Leave it this way for the time being. That could become a quite a useful phrase, I think, in our Christian lives, as individuals and as churches. Oh, you shouldn't have come to see me. My problems aren't really worth your time. I know you're a busy person, and you've got much more important things to do, and many more important people to see and to spend some time with. Leave it this way for the time being. Let me stay. Let's talk. I really don't agree with that decision that the church has just made. I thought I understood what God wanted, but why is it that the rest of the congregation don't seem to share my vision for this church? Leave it like that for the time being. tried to pray but really I can't find words myself there's something empty inside so in the end all I can do is say the Lord's Prayer and maybe a psalm leave it that way for now <laughs> for the time being you see the Christian life isn't something that is constantly a matter of God blasting us with divine confirmation and revelation. The Christian life is very often a matter of being obedient to what we already know that God has said. And in doing that, in doing that we join the queue with everybody else. <laughs> In doing that, those of us who are here in church, where I, I guess on a Sunday morning there is the opportunity for God to speak, we actually recognise that we are a part of 
while the rest of the world who live much of their lives kind of just trying to do what they think is right even if they don't name that as God those who are waiting and longing and hoping and praying and living and dying and may even be in a desert place themselves you see it's in these places in the ordinary moments of obedience and service in faithful mission in doing the things that Jesus instructs us to do at the end of this gospel in going into the world trying to make disciples and teaching other people what Jesus has said and baptising when that's appropriate it's in these ordinary things mundane as they often are that there is always the chance that the heavens might open that the Spirit will bless us and that we will hear the voice of God and for many of us this morning that may just mean that we know that we need to keep on with what we're already doing <laughs> but confident now that the Jesus who promised to be with us always to the end of the age is with us even as we step out of the doors of this building for others of us well there may have been something that God has been saying and we know it deep down inside <laughs> and we've not done anything about it maybe it's baptism maybe you know that you need to be baptised and you never have been maybe it's something about your relationship with God that needs to be restored maybe it's about your relationship with someone else that needs to be reconciled whatever it might be let it be so for now to fulfil all righteousness because it's in that obedience in that commitment in that serious intention in our willingness to be a part of the ordinary experience of everyday life but with God by our side it's there that we may see something of God's purposes we may know the Spirit's anointing upon us and we might hear the voice of God speaking afresh Amen let's pray together and so loving God this morning we thank you for this feast of the baptism of Jesus and for the opportunity to be reminded that in baptism Jesus not only inaugurated his great mission of obedience and service but he gave us an example to follow we pray this morning loving God that we may not rush to the conclusion without first treading the steps of faithful obedience serious intention humble service those steps that Jesus walked 
May they be our steps this week. As we go back to our lives in family, in home, in work, in our networks of relationships. But where there are things that we know we must do, for now, for this time and for this place, give us the strength that Jesus had. And even as we are obedient, even as we take small steps on our journey of faith and following, grant to us something of the reassurance that reminds us that we are your children, that you love us, and that you are pleased with what we offer to you. For we ask it, In Jesus' name. Amen.